A warm welcome to First Move. It's great to be back with you. Lots to discuss this Monday as ever as the new UK Chancellor Jeremy Hunt gets blunt. Prime Minister Liz Truss's fiscal fumble led to a serious UK market stumble. But Hun's underlying message today, I think, is uh, we've been humbled. The finance minister today delivering an emergency statement designed to steady government finances and financial markets, promising fiscal prudence and rolling back virtually all the tax measures the government so recently announced to try and boost growth. Today's outline rolled out weeks earlier than scheduled to a nod, I think, to the fragile state of UK assets, particularly since the Bank of England wrapped up its emergency bond buying programme on Friday, a hurried response, of course, to protect teetering pension funds. Hunt, therefore, getting out in front, and his message is having its intended effect. Investors who rejected earlier unpaid-for stimulus plans are now welcoming Hunt's more austere approach. The pound today, as you can see, firmer against the US dollar. Borrowing costs in the UK also falling too. UK 10-year yields back below 4% after rising to some 4.5%. If you remember last week, investors could ultimately, I think, cast the deciding vote on Prime Minister Truss's survival. Today, she looks like she's in office but out of power. More on all this in just a few moments' time. In the meantime, a firmer picture in equity markets overall. U.S. stocks set to rise after last week's extreme volatility that sent the Nasdaq, the tech-heavy sector, down some 3% on Friday alone. Europe, as you can see, also higher to that, including UK stocks as well. We might just give you a quick glimpse of that if we can. I'll move over to Asia in the meantime. A mixed picture there too. The Nikkei softer by more than 1%. China rising as the week-long Communist Party Congress continues. That's the Asian picture. President Xi set to win term number three, doubling down on hardline decrees. And that is where we begin today's show. Consolidating power, President Xi Jinping reaffirming his commitment to Beijing's existing policies, including zero COVID, as he's set to claim an unprecedented third term as China's leader. In responding to the sudden outbreak of COVID-19, we prioritize the people and their lives above all else and tenaciously pursue dynamic zero policy in launching all-out people's war against the virus. We have protected the people's health and safety to the greatest extent possible and made tremendous encouraging achievements in both epidemic response and economic and social developments. Selena Wang joins us now on this. Selena, great to have you with us. It was a two-hour speech at that party congress. No mention I saw of, of challenges like high youth unemployment, of the real estate crisis that they're currently dealing with, but strong, firm stance on zero COVID, on Hong Kong, and on Taiwan as well. And that caught my attention, and there's clearly some disquiet listening to what he said. Yeah, Julia, well, I mean, this two-hour speech was essentially this long, glowing report card of how Xi Jinping's leadership has helped China achieve these historic victories. So it was all about the successes. Of course, this dramatic picture of progress that he's painting does come into sharp contrast with the severe challenges that he's facing at home and abroad, the economic damage from his zero COVID policy, which he reaffirmed isn't going anywhere, the record high youth unemployment rate, this property sector in 
crisis. We did hear Xi Jinping emphasize this idea of common prosperity, which is the idea of increasing middle incomes as well as trying to reduce that income gap in China. But what we're actually seeing in China is people from all walks of life struggling to make ends meet because of that zero COVID policy. We also heard reaffirmations about Taiwan. What really struck me when I was listening to his speech live was that there was the loudest and longest applause from the more than 2,000 Communist Party delegates in that room at the moment when Xi Jinping said, we will aim to reunify Taiwan peacefully, but we will never renounce using force. Julia. Hmm. As with all these things, the choreography is important to um, consider at the same time, too. You know, it's interesting to see what some of the analysts out there were listening to and even adding up in terms of the words that were used, just to compare it to what we saw today versus five years ago back in, in 2017. The frequency this time around of the words security, people and socialism far higher than we saw five years ago. Then compare it to the words that we saw back then when there was so much hope economy, market, reform, a lot less than. It gives you a sense of perhaps what we already knew, but a confirmation of some of the biggest concerns about where China's heading, particularly relative to the rest of the world. Exactly. I think it's important to remember that under Xi Jinping, his vision is that in order to make China great again, you've got to have increasing Communist Party control in every part of Chinese business, economics and society. So we are definitely going to see in this third term increasing party control and more control over that private sector. In that speech, you heard him talk about innovation underpinning growth. Well, we can be sure that that is going to be more state led innovation, as we have seen over the past year, market value being wiped out of top Chinese tech firms because of that increasing regulations on their big tech companies, the big private companies. You also heard discussions about increasing self-reliance. That's going to be a huge challenge for China, especially in their chip-making sector, as you are seeing the U.S. increase its sanctions, its its difficulty for these exports of critical technologies to China in that chip-making sector. The other point that we also heard him talk about, which doesn't get talked about enough, Julia, is demographics in China. He talked about trying to ease this problem of an aging population. China is dealing with this looming demographic crisis, but unfortunately their efforts to get couples to have more babies isn't working. I've been interviewing young couples who say the financial difficulties that they're dealing with because of the economic downturn, all the restrictions from zero COVID. Well, it doesn't exactly make them want to have more kids, Julia. Yeah. Some of those policies exacerbating some of the biggest issues and longer term issues that they face. Um, Selena Wang, great job. Thank you so much for that. In the meantime, British police are investigating an apparent assault on a protester at a Chinese consulate in the north of England. It happened during a demonstration by a Hong Kong pro-democracy group against Xi Jinping. China's foreign ministry said it was not aware of the incident. And uh, sticking in the United Kingdom, another U-turn in British Prime Minister Liz Truss's so-called mini-budget. Newly appointed Chancellor or Finance Minister Jeremy Hunt says they are essentially ripping it up. We will reverse almost all the tax measures announced in the growth plan three weeks ago that have not started parliamentary legislation. Hunt also said more tough decisions on tax and spending are coming. Bianca Noblo joins us now on this. Bianca, I was going to say to you what remains, because I think it's easier to say what remains than actually what's been stripped back. 
and the underlying concern here is there's more to come. It's real prudency compared to what we saw a couple of weeks ago. It is. I think we need another term other than U-turn now because that was Jeremy Hunt, the new Chancellor, completely dismantling what was the Prime Minister's mini-budget. And this presents a number of issues because not only did Liz Truss' campaign almost exclusively on an economic mandate to become prime minister on you know, cutting taxes to stimulate growth, on less redistribution of a small state. But this is Jeremy Hunt now taking over because he obviously took this role on his own terms, saying that the priority of this government and this country will be stability, which is a marked contrast from the language we were hearing from the prime minister over recent weeks, who said we have to have a change from the status quo. It can't continue. That's the most important thing. And Jeremy Hunt did announce that there would be more pain to come. He said to departments, you're going to have to start looking at areas to cut, to fund um, the, the public spending that we do want to do. So now the Prime Minister is in a very difficult position as Jeremy Hunt addresses the House of Commons later today, Julia, in about an hour and a half, because he is leading. At the moment, you know, political power in Westminster has to go somewhere. And it's definitely not with the prime minister. It's being drained away from her. And Jeremy Hunt addressing the markets first thing on a Monday, being the representative from government to try and steady the ship, is all optics that I think the prime minister is probably not altogether welcoming. Yeah, I mean, drained away makes it almost sound like it happened over a period of time. It felt like a complete Mm. vacuum, quite frankly, for the last um, for the last couple of weeks in office, but not in power. It feels like the financial markets for investors, to be specific, will ultimately decide if this does steady the ships, then perhaps um, Prime Minister Trust can can remain. What's your sense from what you're hearing? Because the danger now is within the party and their own stability within themselves and, and not looking even more ludicrous, quite frankly, if they throw out another prime minister. That's such a good way of putting it because there is such instability and it's also an existential issue now, not just for the Conservative Party, but for these lawmakers who had assumed after winning a stonking majority in 2019 that they'd be safe in their jobs, that they'd be able to pay their school fees and mortgages and would have a life plan for the next decade or so. But that isn't the case anymore. Looking at the polling, Liz Truss has put the party in a position where if there was an election tomorrow, most of them would lose their seats. So the position for the Prime Minister is perilous and the market reaction will determine a lot. What's interesting is the removal of Kwasi Kwarteng as Chancellor uh, bought her some time, but the implication being now that if, if markets rally, it's because of Jeremy Hunt and not because of the Prime Minister. She's almost incidental and has faded into the background a little bit as, and has become more of a liability. And that is exactly why we're hearing these open questions and plotting in Westminster about how she could be ousted. Most people I speak to, Julia, say that the Prime Minister is simply in an unrecoverable position. There is There is no clawing her way back from this you know when you've lost that trust and confidence and credibility when in politics do you ever get it back in a democracy so it's a an issue of time for most whether it's one week two weeks until christmas one of the priorities for the conservative party is to have a plan because when boris johnson was ultimately pushed out through all those resignations there wasn't a plan in place and look what happened this is what happened so the grandees within the party feel like there needs to be some kind of coherence 
in terms of the strategy, a unity of purpose about who would replace Liz Truss, and they want to avoid the vote having to go to the membership. So there's a lot of fiddling to be done behind the scenes, but by and large, the question is not if, it's just when will Liz yeah. Truss be deposed? Hmm. Time will tell. Mm. How much time there is the question. Thank you so much for that. Okay, let's move on. Rescue operations are underway in Kyiv after kamikaze drone attacks, according to Ukrainian officials. The Prime Minister says the Russian attacks hit critical infrastructure, cutting power supplies in some areas. In downtown Kyiv, normally bustling with students and people socialising, explosions set buildings on fire and sent people running for cover. At least three are reported to have been killed. Clarissa Ward joins us now. Clarissa, what can you tell us about the aftermath of these latest attacks and what are people saying to you about their fears now of more? Well, this definitely feels like a grim new chapter. After several months of relative peace and quiet here in Kiev, it has very much been at the forefront again last Monday with that barrage of missiles and today with these kamikaze drone attacks. We just returned recently from the scene of one of those explosions, a residential building. Uh, we're now hearing from Ukrainian authorities at least four people were killed, including an elderly woman, a young couple. Uh, the wife was reportedly six months pregnant. And the target appears to have been a sort of power plant in the neighborhood that was also targeted in last week's barrage of missiles. And so far, it's unclear as to how much, if any, damage has actually been sustained to that uh, particular plant. But clearly, the goal here is very much to try to take out crucial civilian infrastructure, such as electricity, heat, power plants. Uh, we spoke to the mayor of the city, Vitali Klitschko, Julia, who said to us essentially that while the goal appears to be to intimidate and depress people here in Kiev, that actually these attacks are having the reverse effect, that they are making people angrier and more resolved to try to win this war once and for all. But certainly uh, a very grim day with at least four people killed here in the city uh, and rescue attempts ongoing at various locations, Julia. Mm, another grim day. Clarissa Ward, thank you so much for that. Okay, straight ahead. As the government hits the brakes on tax cuts, who's in the driving seat of Great Britain, the Prime Minister or the Chancellor? Plus, a month into protests for women's rights in Iran, what's the end game? Dissident activist Masih Alibyan weighs in. Welcome back to First Move. It's being called one of the biggest U-turns in British economic history. The Conservative government's ill-timed fiscal stimulus fling no longer a thing. UK Finance Minister or Chancellor Jeremy Hunt announcing in an emergency statement today that some $50 billion equivalent of planned tax cuts are now off the table after this month's financial market revolt. Hunt channeling his inner Mario Draghi, perhaps, saying that the government will, quote, do what is necessary for economic stability. It is a deeply held conservative value, a value that I share, that people should keep more of the money they earn. But at a time when markets are rightly demanding commitment to sustainable public finances, it is not right to borrow to fund this tax cut. 
So I've decided that the basic rate of income tax will remain at 20% and it will do so indefinitely until economic circumstances allow for it to be cut. Hunt also warning that more difficult decisions will have to be made on tax and spending in the weeks and months ahead. Rishi Chama joins us now. He's the author of The Ten Rules of Successful Nations. He's also contributing editor at the Financial Times and the chair of Rockefeller International. The Ten Rules of Successful Nations. How's the UK government doing in that regard? I shouldn't smile. It's, it's quite appalling, really. But what do you make of this latest U-turn? And is this enough, do you think, to stabilise financial markets and the economy? Yeah, hi, Julia. I think that the basic problem that was revealed uh, by what the UK policymakers did over the last couple of weeks is how the global regime has shifted, which is that policymakers, I'd say even asset allocators and investors, have been so used to living in a world where you had uh, free money, easy money, and also where there was no real check on how much deficit spending that you did. I mean, remember that... Uh, even the U.S. Uh, government and the Federal Reserve was under the impression till probably even a year ago uh, that deficits didn't matter. And I think that what's happening across the world is that as this era of free money has come to an end, um, a lot of policymakers are being forced to adjust to that new reality, which is that you cannot do uh, what you could do even three to four years ago and possibly get away with it. So I think it's this big regime shift that is taking place around the world. And we should see the events in UK as exhibit A of how policymakers are just lagging in internalizing this regime shift that's underway across the world. Suddenly, investors are punishing governments for making mistakes. And it's instant. Is this a good thing? You know, looking at Daily market reaction is never a good thing because markets can change on a uh, uh, on a dime. They can turn on a dime. So I don't think that's the right thing. But I do feel the fact that some sort of monetary and fiscal responsibility is creeping back into the system. I think that's a good thing. Um, now, of course, on the fiscal side, it's so interesting to see that uh, tax cuts have been rejected uh, because they're unfunded. But, you know, the really big problem, if I step back and the big picture problem across governments, especially in the developed world, is that the government's role just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And I think that's the fundamental problem with what we still call capitalism, that we have capitalism. But if you look at the trajectory of government spending across the world, UK included, and this uh, includes even the uh, 1980s, the role of government, especially government spending as a share of the economy, has just gone up and up. And I think that there's no control on that. And very little discussion is still taking place that what do you do to cut back on government spending, especially with, you know, the uh, all the pension liabilities and all the uh, debt that keeps building up because the demographics are also turning against the uh, fiscal situation. So I think that that is really at the heart of a lot of problems we had that the role of government keeps on increasing, undermines productivity, and also makes very little room to do any experimentation with tax cuts, just because the um, government spending uh, is up significantly. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you, actually. I feel like you missed a part of that, which is how do we get the House in order, cut back spending, and get re-elected? 
because this is part of the problem of populism. When you make promises in order to get elected and then you have to fulfill them, you just end up creating bigger and bigger government and spending. But that takes us off in a whole different direction. And I want to rein myself in and bring it back to an article that you wrote, which I loved recently for the Financial Times. And you called the US dollar and the rising strength that we're seeing in the US dollar a wrecking ball. Explain why in light of what you're saying with, with central banks around the world all raising rates, but the, the US dollar in particular benefiting from this, how dangerous this moment is and how out of whack even that strength is relative to interest rates and other interest rates around the world? Yeah, if you look at the dollar's path over the last few months, it's become totally disconnected from the typical fundamentals that drive currency values. What are those fundamentals? As you said, interest rate differentials general valuation metrics, current account balances. This is what drives currency values over the normal course. But what's happened is that the dollar's rise over the last few months has been uh, just a safe haven trade, uh, which has become more and more speculative, that people are buying the US dollar just because they think the dollar is about to go up, and it is totally disconnected from these underlying fundamental realities. And this has grave consequences for the global economy, because the dollar is in many ways a proxy for global liquidity, uh, that everyone trades off the dollar, um, how much the dollar is falling and rising dictates the central bank's liquidity across various countries from uh, Brazil to UK to um, Japan, everywhere really, this has a major consequence. And the point that I was making in that article is that something needs to be done about this rather than everybody saying, oh, the dollar has to go up because the Fed is increasing interest rates. That's true, but that's just not the simple logic that drives currency values because other central banks too are increasing interest rates. So it's disconnected from fundamentals such as interest rate differentials. It's become unhinged. It's become a massive speculative trade around the world. And I think that this the time is there now for some sort of a coordinated central bank intervention led by uh, the U.S., where in fact the Treasury makes such decisions uh, to try and stabilize the dollar's value or weaken it somewhat. And I think that central bank intervention, when done in a coordinated way, can be very effective. So that's one policy tool uh, that policymakers have to try and stabilize the global um, financial conditions at a time when they have no choice but to increase interest rates to target inflation. So these have to be I thought of as two separate policy tools. And just to be clear, I mean, two thirds of emerging market central banks are already selling U.S. dollars and buying their own currency to support it. It's just not happening in a coordinated manner so that the bang for the buck, to use a um, sort of a colloquial term, isn't as great. But Rishi, part of the argument, and I know you say that you don't believe that the Treasury, the U.S. Treasury will agree to this, is this perception that if you allow your currency to weaken and we're seeing it all over the world, prices of goods that you import get higher. You import inflation at a time when inflation is already too high. You say this is not the case for the United States. One, because the sheer level of imports as a proportion of GDP is relatively lower compared to other countries, but also that the US dollar is used to set prices around the world. Can you just quickly explain why the argument that it will mean that the United States suffers higher prices if they allow the dollar to weaken is wrong? Yeah, uh, all the academic work has shown that, So, including the Federal Reserve's own work. So first, U.S. imports as a share of the U.S. economy is as low as 12 percent. 
And the second point is that 95% of all the imports are anyway invoiced in US dollars. So uh, the impact that a 1% rise on, uh, in the US dollar has on US inflation is statistically insignificant. It's virtually zero, right? So there's uh, hardly any impact. Whereas on the other countries, when their currencies are weakening, the impact is greater. In the developed world, the impact is three times greater than what we have in the United States. And in emerging markets, it's six times greater. So if you end up having a policy where um, governments around the world decide to weaken the dollar or even stabilize it, that has really no impact on U.S. inflation, but it may actually help inflation calm down in some of the other countries. Remember, inflation is a global problem. It's not just a U.S. problem uh, now. So I just feel this policy intervention where policymakers, central banks around the world can come together in a coordinated way to try and stabilize the value of the U.S. dollar can have a lot of positive effect when the global economy needs some. And everybody's meeting up in Washington anyway. So, uh, you know, for the IMF World Bank meetings this week, so get in the same room and uh, come up with some sort of a solution. And it's been done before. Uh, coordinated central bank intervention in varying forms has been done from something as grand as the Plaza Accord to something uh, as uh, uh, relatively smaller in the mid-1990s when, in fact, central banks intervened. I remember for the first time in my career uh, that I saw it live uh, on our screens, and that was done to prevent the dollar from falling. So central banks and policymakers have, in the post-Bretton Woods era, intervened often in a coordinated way to try and stabilize currency values on yes. both sides for the U.S. dollar, and the moment is there now for that to be done. It's sort of politically easier to support something, though, rather than to push something down, especially one month out from uh, midterm elections. And, and to your point, the Fed knows this because they've done the research. Janet Yellen, former Fed chair and now also U.S. Treasury secretary. So just to be clear, yes or no, do you think the United States will support this? Well, the odds are very low just now, but uh, <laughs> I'm hoping against hope uh, because one of the key elements of coordinated central bank intervention and is that it needs to come as a surprise. Uh, that's what the research shows. So uh, I hope they're keeping this a well-guarded secret and that we will all be pleasantly surprised. I love that you're almost saying that with a straight face, Rishir. And you know what? I'm so naughty. I've run out of time, but I wanted to talk to you about the fact, and you're pointing this out, that countries like probably one, as you would expect, Saudi Arabia, but ones that you perhaps might not expect, Portugal, Greece, Indonesia, also doing relatively well at this moment when we're spending a lot of time talking about the challenges. But I have to get you back to talk about that. So um, I'm just fixing our next interview uh, and, and warning my team that you're coming back soon to discuss that because I have to say goodbye. Rishir, thank you. Rishir Sharma there, author of The Ten Rules of Successful Nations and the chair of Rockefeller International. I talk too much. We're back up to this. Welcome back to First Move, where U.S. stocks are up and running on the first trading day of the U.S. week. A major average is gaining ground after last week's volatility, which pushed the Nasdaq into bear market territory once again. Look at that spring higher, 2.6 percent higher in early trade so far this morning, though admittedly just a couple of minutes of the session beginning. Investors rattled, of course, by September's discouraging consumer inflation numbers, which showed core prices rising to fresh 40-year highs. New numbers Friday showed U.S. consumer inflation expectations also on the rise again, too. All this raising fears that the Federal Reserve will raise interest rates by three quarters of a percent next month as well as in December. 
In the meantime, earnings continue to roll in for major U.S. financial institutions. Bank of America reporting better than expected results amid strength in its bond trading unit. But the company, like other major banks, suffered large declines in Q3 investment banking revenues. Also today, reports that Goldman Sachs is set to announce a wide-ranging reorganization that will merge its investment banking and trading business units into one. Goldman's reports its quarterly results tomorrow before the opening bell, so we'll watch to see any announcements on that front. Now back to one of our top stories today, UK's new finance minister or chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, dropping almost all of the government's planned tax cuts announced by Prime Minister Liz Truss. The move comes after the plan caused the British pound to hit a record low and UK government bond yields to soar. Joining us now to discuss, Douglas McNeil, his one-time advisor to former finance minister Rishi Sunak. Douglas, great to have you on the show. Speaking of Mr Sunak, I wonder whether he's somewhere banging his head against a wall thinking, I told you so, because he was initially saying when he was going to become the future leader, prudency. Fiscal prudency is unfortunately what's required. What do you make of what we've seen today and in the past few weeks? Well, yes, you're quite right, Rishi, consistently warned against the policies advocated by Liz Truss and then put into practice uh, by Liz Truss. Um, and uh, so I think banging banging head against the wall is probably about right. Of course, no one can take any pleasure uh, from what has happened over the past few weeks. Today's uh, announcement seems to be a positive development, at least so far as the markets are concerned. And after all, keeping the markets on side or winning back the confidence of the markets uh, is the, uh, the principal aim uh, of the exercise. So I think it's good to see that bond yields are down a little bit uh, and the, the currency has firmed up a little bit. That on the back of performance in both those uh, both those markets on Friday afternoon, uh, which wasn't all that encouraging. Uh, that on the back of a press conference by uh, Prime Minister Liz Truss, which got a, a pretty mixed reception. So um, first step of the mission has been accomplished in the sense that the markets uh, have given this a positive reception. Um, of course, it is something of a political setback, a, a humiliation, some would say, uh, for the government. Uh, and uh, we now wait to see how they will manage the political consequences of that. I want to talk about that, but I just want to, to ask you again, do you think this is trust re-established or just the beginning of it? So far, it's all just been words, one way or the other. Yes, well, that's true. And um, so I think this probably is just the, the first of several steps, and it will probably be a, a multi-month, perhaps a multi-year mm process. Once you lose credibility, it takes a long time to get it back. Uh, but at least the, the rot has been stopped to some extent. Um, I think that the, the, the extra piece of that equation uh, is, however, the fact that um, your, your policy changes have to be credible. And that's perhaps what your, your question is driving at. Uh, so when it comes to something like the scaling back of the energy price support package, which the Chancellor has announced this morning, that's all well and good. That cuts the borrowing requirement, of course. But markets will be thinking that probably he will have to put some form of uh, support scheme in its place uh, when it uh, reaches its uh, its end, which will now be next April. Um, and they won't be, you know, they won't be taking at face value the notion uh, that uh, no no further support will be required at that point. To be fair, the Chancellor hasn't said that. Um, uh, people will be wondering uh, quite how he's going to develop that energy price support package after next April. And inflation was already the highest of among the G7 nations. Growth already the weakest of the G7 nations. He's talking about potentially cutting more. I, 
I struggle to see how you cut further in this kind of environment when they're still talking about growth policies, um, reforms, infrastructure investment, whatever it looks like, Douglas. I think they've got a really tough job on their hands. Does Liz Truss survive this? As you said, even as late as Friday, having seen her own former chancellor step down, she still didn't manage to galvanise confidence. In fact, it was a, a, a discomforting speech to watch. Does the party decide to replace her, in your view, given what you know of, of the politics of the Conservative Party? Well, she's clearly under intense pressure. There's clearly uh, great unhappiness across uh, many sections of the party uh, with her performance. That said, uh, to ditch another leader so soon after ditching the previous one uh, is clearly something that would be uh, awkward and, and which um, uh, would, would not look good. Uh, and it might well lead to a general election as well. And it's not clear that the party uh, is in a fit state to face a general election just at the moment. So there is uh, a powerful countervailing force uh, that argues against making any change in the leadership. I think as well, a lot of Conservative MPs will be inclined to give Jeremy Hunt a bit of a chance to show what he can do, uh, to show whether he can uh, turn things around, steady the ship and so on. Uh, but you are quite right. If it comes to cutting public expenditure or even reducing the rate of growth of public expenditure, that's an extremely difficult thing to do. Um, one of the obvious and traditional ways uh, of finding savings, if you, if you need to find cash savings, is to look to the investment budget, the capital budget. You alluded to that uh, in your question. Uh, and that is a place where you can find savings without um, disappointing people quite as much as when you cut day-to-day -day spending. But of course, uh, if, you, if you resort to that, then in the medium and long run, economic growth will suffer. So right now, Jeremy Hunt is prime minister in all but name. It looks like he is in an extremely powerful position, uh, mm. and that is uh, very much the story of the weekend and the story of today. Uh, he's been imposing himself on the on the situation, arguably going a little bit further, perhaps considerably further, uh, than Liz Truss uh, indicated she wanted to go in her press conference on Friday. That was a relatively brief affair, so it was hard to get a, a sense that you were getting a, a full impression of her thinking. Uh, today, I think uh, an important task for her and him is to show that they are on the same page. Uh, yeah. They will be making an appearance in Parliament, uh, so this is a chance for them we to show see. that they are in fact standing shoulder to shoulder. Douglas, thank you so much for that. Douglas McNeil, former advisor to Rishi Sunak. Thank you. Okay, coming up after the break, as Iran's leaders lay blame for protests at the door of the United States, what will it take to bring real change? We'll discuss next. Welcome back. Battling on in Tehran and beyond. Iranian women continue to take to the streets in a show of defiance towards authorities. CNN obtained all of these videos from the pro-reform outlet Iran Wire. It's been a month since the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini in police custody and demonstrations continue across Iran. Also at the weekend, a fire inside the notorious Evin prison. State media says eight prisoners died and dozens were injured in Saturday's blaze. Tehran's prosecutor says it wasn't linked to the protests, but so far CNN is unable to verify this claim. My next guest says the battle for women's rights could be Iran's Berlin Wall moment, quote, a tipping point for lasting change. Journalist, activist and political dissident Masih Alinjad lives in exile in the United States, 
From there, and with 8 million followers on Instagram, she uses her voice to aid and amplify protests and the voice of Iran. She's also the author of The Wind in My Hair, My Fight for Freedom in Modern Iran. And she joins us now. Massey, great to have you on the show. You're a powerful voice, both inside, even from outside Iran. I just want to start with what we saw at the weekend and the fire that was started in this prison. From those that you're speaking to and what you're hearing, is this tied to the protests? Oh, definitely. It was very heartbreaking. And let me tell you, some of the prisoners actually reached out to their family members. For them, it was clear that it was not just having prison in fire. Gunshot was hearing, and some of the prisoners were trying to save their lives. They've been under attack by the security guard inside prison. They've been sprayed by tear gas. So definitely, people of Iran, they don't trust the Islamic Republic, and they see this as a link to the ongoing protest inside Iran. I mean, for those that follow you on social media, you constantly retweet and post videos that people have sent you from inside Iran, doing your best despite the Internet crackdown and and blackout to to provide people with evidence of, of what's taking place in Iran at this moment. You compared your headscarf, and I mentioned it in the introduction, to the Berlin Wall. If that falls, if that breaks, it could ultimately be some kind of catalyst for change. The Supreme Leader even mentioned the phrase that you used in this comparison with with the Berlin Wall. How fearful do you think the Supreme Leader and the regime leaders are watching what's taking place in, in Iran at this moment and around the world? I strongly believe that the Supreme Leader of Iran, Ali Khamenei, is uh, losing control because he knows better than everyone that compulsory hijab is not only the Berlin Wall, it is the Achilles of the um, Achilles Hill of the regime. It is the weakest pillar of the Islamic Republic. You know that there are three pillars, death to America, death to Israel, compulsory hijab. Now women are tearing this wall down. And that's why he got scared. And he referred to to me as well and uh, putting the blame on the West. But women inside Iran, shoulder to shoulder with men, are leading this revolution. What does it take, Masi, in your mind, for for what you're calling a revolution to trigger regime change, if that's what the people decide, the women and the men that are joining them want? That's a very good question. Look, Iranian people risked their lives, did everything to bring this regime down, to end this gender apartheid regime. What can actually um, survive uh, this like regime, this brutal regime, is the West. Let me make it clear now. Everything that we have been seeing in one month, it's clear that Iranian people are uh, asking the Western countries to stop saving the regime. First, we want uh, the Western country to recall their ambassadors. It's not me saying that miles away from Iran. It's the demand of Iranian people that I'm being in touch with them. Millions of people actually believe that it's enough is enough. They don't want to live with humiliation. Many of them say that uh, clearly in the street that we want an end for the Islamic Republic. They're not chanting against America. They're not. uh, There's no single slogan in the street saying that we want a nuclear deal. That's another demand. The West must stop negotiating with the Islamic Republic while they're killing teenagers in the streets. And the West actually should close down the embassies or Iran's interest section because that is going actually to help Iranian to see that the West 
is sending the right signal and recognizing this revolution. Otherwise, there won't be any reason for the Islamic Republic to kill its innocent people. I mean, you've said this many times now. One of your big fears is that because of high energy prices, uh, a new deal is signed, the Iranian nuclear accord, it will unlock frozen financial funds for Iran and, and they will receive payments for the oil that they send around the world. And, and you see that as a way to help sustain this regime. Yeah. I think that the counter to this would be and to what you're asking for and you're saying that the Iranian people that you speak to is, is that the United States in particular, but other countries have been accused of, of forcing regime change in the past. Mm. Why is this different, Marcy? Look, Why would this be different? Look, I'll, right now that we are talking, uh, Putin's oil being sanctioned, mm. and uh, President Zelensky recently announced that many drones being provided by the Islamic Republic uh, to attack Ukrainians. So you see, Iranian regime is actually acting in the uh, current war in Ukraine. So that is why many people demand the democratic countries to stick with their own values and address the Islamic Republic the same way as they address uh, Putin's regime. You remember for years and years, uh, Gary Kasparov, a friend of mine, was warning the, about the danger of Putin. The Western democratic countries were telling him um, they didn't take him serious, labeling him like warmonger or saying that you're asking the Western countries to interfere. What happened? The war is in Europe. And now this is us Iranians warning about the danger of the Islamic Republic. If the democratic countries do not get united the way as the dictators are united from Venezuela to Russia to China to Iran, then believe me, um, the, the, the Western country must face dictators on their own soil. And that's the challenge with the United Nations, because many of these countries are within the United Nations and have certain veto power and, and oversight, and it makes taking action so difficult. And I know you've, you've spoken about this too in the past. Um, I, I want to ask you, what can ordinary people do that are not in Iran? Many people that I speak to that, that are... Iranians, but they're living around the world. They say, what more can we do other than prayer and, and good wishes for people? What more can people do? To be honest, this time, the sense of unity that we see among uh, people across the globe is phenomenal. It's very heartwarming. I see that many actresses like Sharon Stone, like... Um, uh, Angelina Julie and many, many actresses, J.K. Rowling, you know, the amazing woman of uh, Harry Potter, or keep supporting Iranian women. That gives hope to Iranian ordinary people inside Iran that finally we are being heard. But what I want, um, uh, it's clear, I want the democratic countries, especially female politicians, to take uh, strong actions. This is the moment, this is the time, this is the historical revolution. This is the first time in the history that women are leading a revolution. They can have an important role. They can ask you know, uh, for international women's march for Iranians. And that can be a huge help. Right now, teenagers are getting killed. Nikosha Karimi was only 16 year old. Sarino Ismailzadeh was only 17 year old. 
Hadith Najafi was only 20 years old. So there is no difference between these people and uh, like George Floyd moment, you, you remember. Around the world, people took to the streets. This is a Berlin Wall moment for Iranians. And we want the Western countries, ordinary people, to push their local politicians to have International Women's March for Iranian women. Don't forget us. I think that's the, um, the underlying message and keep talking about it. Masi, great to have you on the show. Come back soon, please, because as always, much more to discuss with you. We'll continue Thank you. this. Thank, Thank you. And finally, on first move, the curtain's falling on BTS for now, turning butter into tough guys. Korean pop sensation BTS are swapping the music for the military, as required, of course, by law. CNN's Paula Hancox has been following their every move, and every move in this regard in particular, Paula, a sigh of relief, I think, for the government, a cry of distress from fans. Yeah, Julia, this has been going on for months. There has been speculation as to whether or not BTS was going to be granted an exemption uh, for mandatory military service. It turns out they have not been. And so uh, Jin, who is the oldest, he will turn 30 in December. He will be the first to go into the military. Now, what this is in this country, this mandatory military service, is any able-bodied man between the ages of 18 and 28 must serve in the military for a period of time. That was extended for two years for those who excelled in popular culture and art. So there was some breathing room uh, for BTS, but they haven't uh, got an exemption. Now, there are some who do, sportsmen, for example, who win Olympic medals, that win Asian Games medals. Uh, also, classical musicians uh, who are award-winning do uh, receive exemptions. But uh, Big Hit Music said that they are proud to announce that the boys will be uh, carrying out their mandatory military service and say they respect the needs of the country. Now, there was a, a, a concert in Pusan uh, just on Saturday. It turns out it'll be the last for several years. Julia. Yes, but BTS, BBS. Be back soon in 2025, we believe. So for, for the fans out there that are watching this and are crying once more, they will be back, apparently. Paula Hancock, thank you for that. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be yeah, on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.